Welcome to the podcast, To Sit by the River, with Jim Williams. Jim lives in the Flathead Valley of Montana, just west of Glacier National Park, where he's made a life as a wildlife biologist studying mountain lions in what is, perhaps, the wildest country in the continental U.S. Jim and I spoke online, separated directly north-south by 400 miles of unbroken mountain. As we spoke, I marveled at our instantaneous communication across the wilderness. The snow was falling from here to there, and I pictured the multitude of lions padding silently through the timber and stalking the sage as our voices flew by above. Jim worked for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for 31 years as a regional wildlife partner manager and regional supervisor. He is currently the partnerships manager of the Heart of the Rockies initiative. The Heart of the Rockies supports land trusts for, as Jim says, it's all about land, keeping it open. What struck me about Jim in our conversation is his wise and balanced approach to conflicts of interest in our natural world, an ability to maintain empathy for viewpoints he disagrees with in an effort to work for what he loves. First off, could you just tell us, have you had any, have you ever been scared of a lion? Yeah, you know, there's you know, all large carnivores. And I you know, spent a lot of time working with grizzly bears and wolves and black bears and mountain lions and and uh, scary people at times as well. <laughs> Back to I have some stories there too. But uh, yeah, cats are funny because they're they're very, you know, cryptic. You don't know what they're going to do. They're hard to read. Um, they just look at you, you know, they got these great big eyes. They see the world through their eyes. unlike a bear that sees the world through their nose and the cats watch every move you make when you're near, near them, handling them or see them in the wild. And I guess that what comes to mind is, you know, when I was a graduate student way back when, you know, I was, I was new to climbing trees. And so the hound handlers, you know, and, and the Rocky and Kelly were my two houndmen at the time. They had um, black and tans and plots, and the plot would climb a tree, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you have to pull it out. They're notorious tree climbers. But uh, we had this young male collared, and and I drugged it. And this was the old-fashioned guns back in the day, the old um, Palmer capture systems out of Africa they were. And I thought the drug delivered, and so up I went, and I had a a local cowboy in Augusta made a rodeo kind of, he made rodeo saddles and he made me a climbing kind of a rodeo belt with a big clip that I could tie a rope. And, you know, it wasn't climbing gear, but it's what I could afford, you know, at the time. And up the tree, I went tied in and I took a stick and I kind of poked this cat and kind of nodded its head. You know, I'd hit it good with the dart right in the flank. It was a young male. And I mean, 20 seconds later, the thing lit up, it came flying down at me and I let go. Luckily, I was tied in and it was a waist belt, so it wasn't too comfortable. I kind of, kind of, you could feel the little back strain when I fell back, but I was 30 feet, almost 30 feet up a tree. And so I'd have just been dead. But this cat landed on my lap, took a big front paw swipe out of my wool pants right at the thigh, and then went under. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. he had just one last spurt of energy. And, you know, I about, you know, wet my pants and you know every now and again when you drug these cats they they, they let go too and so uh it was an interesting moment yeah no it i could think of more times i had scary issues with people than cats so 
Yeah, that seems to be the consensus is that yeah, amongst townsmen, there's sort of a paradox when it comes to lines where people there's sort of a anthropomorphizing attributization of so, oh, lions are cowardly because they tree fast, which is obviously it's not to do with them being cowardly, but you know, uh, it, more about their how they're built. But uh, but also, houndsmen who are far more reticent to climb up a tree with a lion for the most part than with a bear. Uh, so, yeah. so there's a seems to be a strange yeah. dichotomy there. Uh, do lion? Can you see the whites of a lion's eyes? No, they look yellow and kind of gold to me. You know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, it you have to get a look at the cat before you, you know, when, when researchers, typically when researchers tranquilize animals, you do a capture with a bear, it's a foot snare or a culvert trap, right? Um, with a wolf, it's usually a foothold trap. So it's a real captive audience there. And, and the same thing with a with a foot snare and a culvert trap, but with a, with a wild mountain lion, you got it up a tree. And it could be five feet up that tree, or it could be 40 feet up that tree. It could be a little teeny skinny lodgepole, or it could be a great big kind of jungle gym Douglas fir, right? And so you can climb the neighboring tree to get a good look at it. And, you know, you got to look at and and try and determine sex. And then you got to try and determine how heavy it is. And that's going to determine, you know, the amount of tranquilizer you're going to use, the dose. Um, and then sometimes you got to climb right up the tree they're in and they let you know, they'll, they'll urinate on you as you're climbing up. They're mm-hmm. nervous sometimes, you know, so I learned to wear a Filson skimmer hat after I got hit enough times. Um, but yeah, you, you can see them up close and they growl, but it's not like the TV commercials where they're screaming, you know, on top of a car, you got to poke a stick at them to get them to do that. They'll just make a low rumble growl or, or they'll, they'll show you their teeth, kind of a stressful yawn. It's really showing stress. And, and then you back away and you, load up your dart and fire it and you got to get up the tree once that cat's down pretty quick because you don't want to fall out and tie a rope around it and lower it down and that's always rodeo too are they stressed to be in a tree they they are not if there are no dogs barking at them or a person below i mean they're very agile climbers right right Uh, but with dogs barking and a human or a crowd of people below yeah they're stressed you know it's not yeah, in my mind it doesn't hurt them, but you know it's it's stress. It's hard to tell with a lion. There's something. The reason I asked about the whites of their eyes is there's something alien about you know a lion's stare where it's yeah. uh, you can't see the whites of its eyes. With a bear, it's very clear how it feels in the tree. We can like understand their emotions a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gnashing its teeth or it's sleeping. It doesn't you know whatever it's. Uh, but with the lion, sometimes it's it seems harder to read. Yeah, they they almost. I tell people, you know, with conflicts and and human interactions, when people run into them on a trail or in the woods, they almost radar lock on you, right? They they look and then they're like transfixed. And it's like they're in a little trance for a little bit. They're looking at you going, food or not food? What are you? You know, and they don't look away. They just lock in on you and you almost got to startle them to get them to look, you know, away. Mm -hmm. And that I tell people, you know, when it comes to running into a cat, if you're out there, especially it's a you know a child or whatever, you need to get a snap them out of that, right? Let them know you're not a deer. Let them know you're not food. And because 90% of the time, 99% of the time, they're just checking you out. Are you are you food or not food? And then we luckily we as people don't meet their search image as prey, and that's why there aren't incidents really. 
I mean, if we did, there'd be dead people everywhere. They're the most efficient killers in the Americas mm-hmm. you know, by far more than bears and wolves. You know, they take down prey larger than they are. Right. So, so I think, yeah, they, their stare is alien and it's kind of haunting. And, and I always tell people they peer into your soul and they can stare right through you. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, in the daytime, I'm, you know, I'm never afraid. I all the rational stuff, but sometimes when I'm hiking, especially when I'm deer or elk hunting and I'm hiking up a mountain in the dark, I sometimes get that itch between my shoulder blades. Uh, and, and, you know, you can turn it on or off. And it's the first interaction I had with the lion was a lion killed a deer in my front yard and it was in the snow. And we, we saw the lion leaving the kill that morning. We live in town, so it was probably spooked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I could see in the tracks that it had gotten up to the deer within, you know, five yards of the deer without the deer ever knowing. And I don't think the deer ever knew what happened. And yeah. that, and, and that's what struck, you know, that's the, I'm not afraid of wolves. I'm not afraid of bears, but that's what strikes me. I'm like, Ooh, gives you that little sort of uh, oh, yeah. chill. Well, way back in the recesses of our monkey brains, there's a reason that happens, right? Thousands and thousands of years of experience as humans with large carnivores, right? We were food at one time for some species, you know? Um, so I have a funny story. Like I had a moose permit. It took me 30 years to draw a moose permit in Montana. I finally drew it. And we were driving, a friend, friend of mine, we were driving between Libby and the Fisher River over a big divide. And the houndmen run it all the time in winter there. And it was a huge hound, hound handling community in the Libby area, right? That's way up by Bonner's Ferry on the Montana side of the border. <laughs> and we were driving over the Savannah and we we're getting into deeper and deeper snow. And we we're just kind of looking for moose sign. And I see this drag mark come right across the road, smoking hot, just a drag, like a sled mark. And I went, huh. And so my buddy was driving and I was looking. He's a fish biologist. A friend of mine went to school together, grad school years ago. And we hunt together. And I, he's in there and I get out of the car and I look up. And there's blood and a bed. And I'm like, holy crap, something, a cat nailed this thing. I started looking. It was a black bear. I was like, no way. This black bear snuck down and leaped. You could see it was just a jump, landed on the steer's back, killed it in its bed, a white-tailed doe. And Doug, so we we went down the road about, I mean, or went follow the drag about five feet through the bushes because it's timbered up here. And there's the bear standing on it, growling and jaw popping at us. It was acting like a lion and really? you know you know it happens but i'd never seen that that close right and so that was kind of cool whoa very cool how, how many lions have you run into outside of your work and outside you know outside of tracking them yeah yeah so outside of like hounds and outside of like flying you know i flew elk surveys and sheep and goats and bear telemetry you know that that's kind of cheating too because you're in the air but now and again, I'd see you jump a cat, right, from a helicopter or a fixed wing plane doing wildlife surveys. But probably um, only in, you know, over 30 years messing around in the mountains, six or seven. Um, they, however, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, they're watching me, right? They're there. They know. It's just they're so, they're the masters of disguise and sitting still and not moving that's a really impressive number that you've seen you must move very quietly because uh they've th- this is a question that has been asked on this network in other interviews mm-hmm. with these old mm-hmm. school uh houndsmen who hunted for you know 70 yep. years and many of them say you know zero to three outside of yep. you know yep. uh 
here here it's so I'm in probably the highest density natural density of mountain lions, cougars, whatever you want to call them, um, in the west. So North Idaho, kind of probably from Coeur d'Alene North and from Missoula North to Southern, a little band of Southern BC. You know, normally there's two to four adults per hundred square kilometers. And we did the DNA work right before I retired. Uh, Molly Park, she's the carnivore lead for Montana now. Um, and we popped up about 4.9, almost five. And years and years and years ago, Morris Hornacker, who's kind of like the patron saint of, of mountain lions, he's in Idaho. He still, he lives in Haley, right? He's, uh, yeah, Morris is retired, but he's a pioneer of mountain lion work. And Howard Qu Quigley, who just passed a couple of months ago, who's also, it was in Idaho. Um, Howard and Morris always were talking to me about, we need to look at densities where you're at. It's, with, it's a continuous canopy cover from northern Idaho to here, you know, it, it changes when you get in a glacier and out onto the prairie, it opens wide open, right? But it's also a, a continuous distribution of meat with feet, and that's white-tailed deer. And white-tailed deer are are more dense than mule deer and and uh, and elk in summer range. You know, elk bunch up on winter. You can get two, three thousand, four thousand in a lot, but but there's summer distributions, they thin out, right? But whitetails are very dense and predictable. So they support a lot of mountain lions and wolves up here. And so the odds of seeing more are greater up here than probably anywhere else, even with the trees, if you're out in the, in the back country. Mm -hmm. You talk in the book a little bit about when opening a quota and a sort of dialogue between hunters, biologists, and all the parties involved, and it was got really tense. Uh, but uh, is it too is it too easy to hunt mount uh, for? I've caught I've just been hound hunting for the last two years, and I've been raising my own pups, so it's been a. And I'm hunting only on foot, and, yep. and I have caught two lions, and both of those were me walking down in front of the trail as opposed to the dog. So uh, yeah. for me, it's, for me, it's been thousands of miles versus, you know, and, and very little catching, but it's been amazing. Uh, You're doing old school. <laughs> yeah. But it not, no, I should get a snowmobile, but is it, but you seem to suggest that when they hit the quota really quickly in that instance in the book, that it's too easy for, uh, to catch lions on snow. Do you, do you think that the, well, is your problem that there's, uh, you think the fair chase element is not there? No, the, the fair chase is there. The problem is it's 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 a classic supply and demand. The supply of lions, you have a natural density that you're never going to get above, and that's at two to four. Up here, it's a little greater, right? Um, could you, could you tell us what the density is? I think people oh, would oh, like to know so that. So two to four resident adults, two to four per hundred square kilometers. And, and um, here it jumps up to close to five, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the highest in the West that... that it, Typically, it's 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 it, they're on white-tailed deer. We have a lot of cats, right? They support a lot of cats. Frankly, a lot of wolves now too, and that's a whole other dynamic, right? Because <laughs> because the wolves will eat the hounds at times. Um, but the supply and demand issue is even with that, people want a male. They want a big male. Most most hunters with, that are that are out that have a license. And this is it was a wide open quota before we went to a special limited entry draw. So what happened was. We had clubs that that would live all year and you know to come out here from Michigan, Wisconsin, Washington, Oregon, you know, 
they, they come to Idaho and Montana because they know we got cats, we got public lands where they don't gotta, they don't have to knock on a door and ask for permission. They can just go out into the mountains. And then the most consistent variable there is snow. December one, typically in North Idaho and Northwest Montana, there is tracking snow on the ground, you know, perfect conditions. Most places, that's not the case. Basin and range where it's dry in the valley, snowy up high, we have snow all over. So people were coming from all over. And then there's a commercial part. So, you know, and, and I don't blame them at all, but guides and outfitters, there's money to be made, right? You can get up to 5,000, 6,000 bucks for a cat, you know, for a non-resident client. So that was wide open. So you had all the resident howmen. Then we had all the visiting howmen that weren't with an outfitter. They were just clubs coming from all over the country. And then we had the outfitters and guides and everyone would descend upon you know, a few real sweet districts with that are darn near 100% public land. So it was just who could find the cats first. And so we had a quota of 12 and we had a female sub quota. And, you know, the, the, that particular year was probably the worst. It was perfect conditions. And we had all three of those groups on the landscape and we opened it up. And a radio, and I was in Libby with my biologist at the time, Jerry Brown, worked there for 40 years. You know, Jerry was a mountain man. And he knew everyone there. And I was in the office with Jerry at eight o'clock, right? And opened up and the season opened and phone calls are coming in from Houndman. You know, hey, I know so-and-so got one here, someone down here. Wants you need to close the quota. There's too many by the time you close it down. Because when you close it, you got to do five o'clock the next day to give people a chance to come out. It's almost impossible to close it immediately because you got hunters all over the mountains, right? So we're like, oh man, yeah, sure. We're like, you know, 30 minutes into going to the office and turning the lights on. And I called the commissioner and Charlie Decker, and he one of the founders of the Elk Foundation. He's one of the four, right? And Charlie's out of Libby and he's a salty, tough mountain guy. And he says, Yep. And he goes, uh, I said, I told him what's going on. He goes, close it. And I said, yeah, sure. Yep. So I called Helena at the time to the wildlife division. And I said, hey, we need to close this district. We think we're already there 30 minutes into the hunt, right? They went, what? And I said, yep, trust me on this one. So we closed it like less than an hour into the hunt. By the time the next day when all the cats drifted out, we had doubled the quota. There was that many people in the mountains and way blew by the female quota. And so that my point is there was too much of an interest, a demand from hound hunters and not enough supply in lions because you know lions aren't high density on the landscape right mm -hmm. so uh what is what is the solution to that uh, yeah. limiting non-resident hunters it, mm -hmm. it it seems to vary by the area uh in some areas there's there's an abundance of pound hunters and others not right yeah uh, yeah yeah it's a good question so here in montana we went to the commission and it took a few years because we went to a limited entry draw and what that did in Montana, state law is non-residents, whether you're with an outfitter or you're coming on your own, get up to 10% of that quota then, and that's it. And so it kind of really take, the non-residents take a hit. And, but the residents favor that because, you know, they work all year to feed their dogs and they want, they didn't, if they didn't have it off, they wanted to have a chance to hunt a cat. So for years and years and years, we were limited entry and, and it hurt the outfitters. It hurt non-residents, but it really benefited resident hunters and cats because it was easy to close it down. But in the last year, the commission here in Montana opened it up a little bit again. And there's some new tools out there, um, you know, with reporting and ways to limit some of the overharvest from non-residents. And so they're experimenting with allowing, um, for instance, a hybrid type season. So you have some limited entry permits where they're wonderful. You get them, 
you can tap picnics. You, you, your season is not going to end. You mm-hmm. can hunt till the end in April, right? You can pick your snowstorm. So there's some of those permits because um, hunters love them. But also, if a quota is not met by those permit holders in December or the end, you know, we start December one in Montana, then that gives the outfitters a chance to come back in again or or non-residents if they draw a special permit, a separate one to come on their own. So the regs were loosened up a little bit last time, and I think they're going to work, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, hunting is a funny thing. You know, you give super, super interest, you know, at certain periods and time. And then, like you said, in some areas they're not there and and it's hard to predict. Yeah. I saw a lot of pushback against that opening of regulations and a lot of the information that I was seeing because oh, yeah. there's a lot of quite, you know, commodification of the, so it is. It, yep. it's interesting with, with outfitting, it seems to be one of the few ways in which wildlife is still commodified here going against the sort of new American model for wildlife management. Does, does outfitting fit into the future of hound hunting? Uh, can predators, uh, can predator populations support the high number of harvests that need to be done if you're an outfitter? I think they can. So outfitting is an interesting, um, it's a, it's a very tough business, right? Um, it's very rural, very local and very unpredictable weather game populations because your, your, your living is depends on number one, your skill set of, you know, surviving and taking a, a client and keeping them alive in the mountains, very difficult. And for lion hunting, you're in some of the toughest country, right? Um, and it depends upon the rules that a state agency, you know, allows you to enter into the game. And I think there's a place, definitely a place for outfitters. They provide a service, for instance, that if you don't have hounds and you've always had a dream to kill a cat legally, experience everything you know they're going to cook a meal for you you're going to be put up you're going to be safe you're going to be taken care of and and there's a large there's a significant amount of people that, that want that experience on the other hand like you there's a lot of people backcountry hunters and anglers is full of them younger high energy they want to do everything on their own old school the tough way just uh you know kind of teddy roosevelt called it uh what um the you know a, a, a pleasant suffering for the hunt you know it, it was a he had another phrase too but to 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 do it the old school way so yeah you know it is commercialization it it's bad there is a service though that they provide and and people want and so um both on private land and public land so i think it can be done it just you really have to tweak the season type and find that sweet spot and mm-hmm. that's what montana's doing right now idaho's a lot more liberal um it depends on the state and the, and the commission's philosophy toward things with teeth and claws. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a hard thing because on the one hand, outfitting is a huge boon to local economies, yep. especially yep. rural local economies and outfitters, ten, guides and outfitters tend to be the best hunters with the best knowledge of that place and those yep. animals. Yep. So an important resource for you, I know in your book, you're constantly, you know, tapping into these, mm-hmm. these, the most experienced people to get their information. Uh, but on the other hand, there's an element of elite elitism and that it's a commodification of guaranteed tags. You know, you're yeah. Donald Trump Jr. You want to go kill a lion in mm-hmm. Montana, you go and pay $10,000. And I, personally, because I, I don't have an interest in using an outfitter. I'm. I, it's easy for me to say that this should be legislated against, but I guess as hunters, we're wary of the the infighting and the death by a thousand cuts approach. That you know, by only selecting for what we particip- we individually participate in, we 
you know, weaken the weaken the movement in general. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I think I think there there there's a needed place for outfitting in in, in hunting, and they do provide a service folks want, and 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 most of them do a really good job too, bring people home safely. That's the number one. Uh, but it's 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 stopping the infighting. You you don't want to pit hound men against archers, against rifle hunters, against foot hunters. That does doesn't do any good to 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 keep the privilege to to legally hunt in any western state particularly for large carnivores because there's a segment of society that doesn't hunt that really advocates for bears and wolves and lions right and frankly the numbers are greater there than in the hunting community so there's this constant sensitivity constant um awareness that as hunters we need to to know you know what we do when people aren't looking or when they are looking is going to dictate whether we have that privilege or not in the future. In the scheme of uh, the morality of hunting, which the sort of general public decides and, and it's important to them for fair play. I can't tell you how many people I've met who I I'm a rifle hunter for deer and elk and I've met who are non hunters and even not outdoorsmen go, Oh yeah, I'm kind of keen on hunting. Uh, I was thinking I'd start with the trad bow and a flint, <laughs> you, you know, an obsidian, whatever the a traditional arrow point, like that, because that's highest up on the fair, fair, uh, fair chase. Uh, do you do you experience a moral difference uh, in hunting predators versus hunting prey? In your yeah, book, you're yeah. clear that yep. you you hunt ungulates, but because of your relationship with lions through the studying, I mean, you've essentially hunted lions, <laughs> but you yeah. haven't, but uh, but you haven't killed them. Uh, yeah. Which many of the best houndsmen I know uh, catch and never, you know, I've spoken to a number of guys who've caught hundreds of lions and bears and you know never killed one. Yeah, it's. So it's interesting. So there's the professional versus personal. So professionally, you know, as a biologist and when I was a wildlife program manager, I've killed mountain lions. I've killed grizzly bears, wolves, black bears. I've signed, you know, I was the, I was the one that had to say yay or nay based on my biologist's advice and they knew what to do to remove a grizzly bear or whatever. And, and I've signed the death sentence on a lot of large carnivores, but it was for a reason. I never focused on individual animal animals i focused on populations and habitats and and one important part of at a population level is society's tolerance for that an animal that could potentially kill them and so there's that balance so so the, some problem animals need to go to keep the rest alive and some people can accept that and others can't it, it's really a value a human value do you like the color purple or do you like the color green mm -hmm. because uh science wise there's a amount of discretionary mortality in any population that you can take out and that population is going to be stable or even grow and so i've had to kill cats but for recreation with a hunting license i've never done it um yeah i've just you know i've grown especially with cats you know I, you know like i said i've killed them but for for sport out there in the woods Honestly, my time was, I'm not the greatest hunter. It was all taken up getting protein from deer and elk because, man, it took me all season. <laughs> but but and, did you, do you feel, does it come from a sort of moral or ethical place or is it just uh, a more of an thing? No, for me with cats, for instance, more of an identity thing. I just feel that I have more of a connection with them having spent and, and worked on them, you know, whether it's setting seasons or tracking them or, or conflict stuff my entire career, really. Um I just, I, I identify with the cats. It's just something I haven't had the desire to do uh, mm -hmm. versus a, an elk or a deer, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go out. It's our season right now. 
And uh, as soon as we get snow on the ground in the valley, I'm gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk in the hound community. People often mention in Calif- that in California, uh, as hound hunting for bears and lions has been legislated out, uh, the harvest by fish and game in California is actually higher than the previous private take. Uh, is you think that is that dubious? Uh, I that's the that's the numbers I've seen. And then, and is there a, is there a way to because I imagine that when you're doing sort of depredation work or get, take getting rid of problem lions and bears, that that bear's going in the dumpster, right? Uh, yeah, and it's you know, so in California, it's and and I get it, you know, you in Washington, Oregon, and California in particular, you have three large urban centers, they're going to dictate what everyone on the other side of the urban rural divide death, right? You know, whether it's LA and San Francisco combined or Seattle or Portland, then you have all the small rural communities on the East or the interior, right? That live on the land with closer to these animals. So there's an inherent conflict right there, kind of a social strife. Um, When California protected their cats, yeah, what it did, it set up their fish and game, uh, California fish and game department employees with almost an impossible task to, to still keep people safe and manage problem lions, whether it's with agriculture or people. And, and uh, also, you know, they probably have the greatest likelihood of a human lion interaction in the country because they have a lot of cats and they have extremely a lot, the, the most amount of people and, and they collide right there in the edges of all those cities. So, you know, you could kind of see that coming. And so they're going to have to remove cats nonstop the the ones that lose that innate fear of people that hang around that could take a pet um so, you know typically uh especially rural and local communities they're not going to tolerate that and then they take things into their own hands and that's the last thing anyone wants um yeah it's a, it, it california's at in, in washington and oregon wherever there are restrictions on legal hunting for howman as the primary tool it provide it, it creates more work for the state fish and wildlife agencies honestly the- I think. that's my personal opinion I've, I'm very much bought into the North American model where a big part of that seems to be non-professional hunting used as a tool for conservation to, you know, in a, in the animal rights ideal, you know, utopian vision of nature, there's no management needed because humans aren't, don't play a role in that. I think in the real world, uh, we have to play a role and there is no sort of prelapsarian ideal state where the lions just exist without us anymore uh, and a lot of your book is sort of navigating that conflict is non-professional hunting a tool for conservation of lions i was a little bit confused because it's at a certain point i thought you were saying that lions kind of self limit their population yep. Yep. and that there's not good evidence that hunting is a useful tool for predator management it it yeah so lion hunting is clearly um, you know, one of the primary tools to manage lion populations in the West. But it depends on what we as people want. And it depends on the state you live in. And frankly, the hunting district you live in where legal hunting occurs, if it does. And depending upon what society's interests are to, you know, unhunted to really hunted hard for mal lions or any species for that matter, then seasons have to be created to meet that demand so yeah at you know lion it, but the 
so yeah, lions do self-regulate, right? The tribes some to here uh, don't hunt lions. They have some uh, cultural values and their densities hit a top, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they disperse, but you know, you're not going to stack lions in like pancakes. They're behaviorally limited to some degree, right? Um, but if you look at natural populations, uh, Kenny Logan and Linda Swainer, they did, you know, 15 years in New Mexico and we compared the mortality they had in an unhunted population with the Garnett population here in Montana by Missoula. And it's almost the same amount of animals, interestingly, removed by legal hunting in Montana versus natural mortality that occurred in mm. New Mexico. Point is, you know, there's a big pie, a piece of that pie, a big circle and a wedge, the wedge of removal uh, in a unhunted population was almost exactly the same as on a population. So cats are going to die no matter what. There's not a utopian death-free state that lions live in. However, in the hunted populations, you can overhunt them by killing too many females. And if that's a goal, then absolutely it works real easy, but you got to be careful with female take. And, you know, they have to be, you know, usually, you know, a couple of years old to have kittens every, every 18 months, sometimes a little less, but, uh, and they got to stay with mom, you know, close to, 18 months. It's not like a deer, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So something I found really uplifting in your book, uh, although it's tempered with, you know, the past uh, wrong, you know, wrong decisions that we've made in terms of wildlife management and the environment is that there's a sort of shame in the greenie movement as to which views humans as destroyers of the environment and solely these negative forces. And yeah. just solely it, only in the numbers alone, I think you, the positive direction of lion populations as they spread, uh, yeah. as they spread, uh, says something good about how our relationship could be uh, with the natural world. Mm-hmm. D- do you see uh, that shame in the environmental movement? Uh, I talked with Hal Herring, and he said that's uh, it's it's the uh, how he sees himself as a inhabitant in the natural world. And that's, I really like that. I don't want to, Mm -hmm. we are part of this world and we need to take care of it, but I don't want to see myself as this sort of separate thing, which needs to preserve, but Mm -hmm. leave untrammeled all, all wilderness. Yeah. I think, so I think, yeah. uh, Interesting. Um, A lot of folks that don't hunt, I I gave talks on my book in New York and Boston, Chicago, and all over California, Seattle and Vancouver in urban areas, right? Big cities. And it was always fun to look at the reaction when I tell them if it wasn't for hound men and hound women, hound handlers, if you will, that cats probably wouldn't even exist in some Western states and rural communities. Um, It takes a connection, whether it's for food like deer and elk, or for, you know, the, the skill of raising trailing hounds, which is really difficult to do. And being able to chase a lion up a mountain and people see in a tree, that's just the very end of a hunt. Uh, There's a lot more that goes into it years in many cases um, for legal lion hunting. Um, It takes a special bond for people to care. And I'm going to use Libby Montana as an example. You know, I used to, there's about 60 to 80, you know, people with hounds that show up at meetings, sometimes more in families. They chase those cats all winter long. You know, deer and elk seasons are done, but they'll chase those cats. They'll name them. They'll take photos of them. They know who has one kitten and two kittens, where an old male is, who's new in the area. They got, you know, they live. For, that's part of their who they are, the, the fabric of, of their life up there in that deep snow mountain country. It takes that kind of passion to have, you know, and they're typically conservative, rural, local, you know, people to show up at the Capitol 
and to beat back bad legislation that is poorly thought through, uh, that wants to eliminate native carnivores, for instance, just on a knee-jerk reaction. And and these are these are people that vote for those, you know, many of the legislators, and they're tough, they're they're hardened in the mountains, men and women and kids show up at these meetings. Uh, through time, whether it was the elimination of bounties, whether it was the creation of quotas, whether it was making animals, uh, mountain lions a big game animal in the Western states, it was a it was the people that hunted them that, that carried the political weight to carry the day. It wasn't the green movement. Mm-hmm. In fact, I look at how men are just as green as the Sierra Club. They just got different personal values. <laughs> Depends on the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and Hellman, I, I use Hellman loosely. Man, I got dear friends, and some of them are are quite the characters. Yeah. I, love, I love that. Uh, uh, that's <laughs> I had I'm, one of them tell me. If I didn't like you, Jim, I'd throw you in this lake right now at a at a tri hound trials when I was giving an update. <laughs> uh, <I'm, laughs> he's I'm, a big guy. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that that uh hound hunters have played that role because that's what you know in the sort of personal histories of houndsmen, there is a there is this belief that it was the hound hunters who in the 1960s and 70s changed from and did you know who the uh, the Lee brothers are they're sort of famous hound hunters from southwest mexico uh, southwest arizona new arizona, mexico arizona new mexico so, yeah. yep and yep. they're putting out the tapes of uh, the interviews with dale lee one of the brothers on this and he's hunting in the 30s through the early 60s mm-hmm. and he kills every single thing he catches <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and that was no doubt the way uh, of, that predators were managed or not managed for the first half of the 20th century but it's my perception uh and i think this is the perception among soundsmen that that changed and houndsmen bought into conserving this thing that they love so much so i'm glad to hear you affirm yeah. that that is part of the story <laughs> And back in the day, in the 30s, you got to remember that people, you know, in this country, we were still trying to to recover and and regain, you know, deer and elk herds. We didn't have them; they were shot out with with settle the settlement of the West, right? Um, pretty much by white pot hunters, right? You know, there, but it, it, there was no game laws really in some cases. So the mindset back then was, you know, the things with teeth and claws, you take them out to get things with hooves that you can eat, and. Uh, yeah, that all changed. In fact, Morris Hornacher of Idaho fame, he lives near you down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, his research was the catalyst that all the hound clubs in the West started looking at going, huh, huh. And, and, and uh, you know, at the halls of academia, rod and gun clubs that, you know, lions are a little different than what Morris discovered back in that Idaho wilderness. He's the first one. You know, lions are a little different than we thought. And we need to be a little careful here if we want to keep them around. What did what did he discover? That number one, there there wasn't a thousand cats in the district. That they are they have home range sizes of females, you know, eighty to a hundred square miles on the large end, a male hundred fifty. That you know they actually were kind of territorial. You know, when he looked at it, you know, the, they would the home ranges would overlap, females and males, but not all the time and not at the same time, um, and. Essentially, uh, he, he figured out, you know, we need to put a quote on here. You kill too many females, the population's gonna gonna suffer, and your 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 overall number's gonna go down. If you care about cats and you're a hound person, uh, you should know that. And so, and we've learned more. And Mark Elbrock now is probably uh, one of the most uh, famous lion researchers, publishers, and he's in Washington on the Olympic Cougar Project. He works for Panthera. Um, he's got cameras out. He's taken it to a new level, and he's finding cats sharing you know, multiple adults sharing food 
on some cameras. So there's they're a little more social than we thought too, but you're not going to have them stacked in there like cordwood, you know, like if you yeah. let a deer herd just grow and grow and grow. And so that changed the minds of a lot of state legislatures, state fish and wildlife commissions that, okay, they're not going to eliminate the elk herd. They're not going to eliminate the deer herd. They have an impact, but you know, if these hound, uh, hound men and women want them and want to pursue them, yeah, yeah, maybe we can make them a game animal and not have a bounty on them anymore. Mm-hmm. That was all because of hound handlers. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, is Mark Elbrock cougar conundrum? Yes. Yeah, I, I endorse the back of his book, actually. Okay, he, so he I, I read it as well. And uh, I, I, I'd need someone like you to talk to him because yeah. I, w- I would just want to argue. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it Mark was, loved that. Mark it didn't liked- seem like the middle way to me. Yeah, Mark Mark is extremely bright and he likes to challenge state fish and wildlife agency for a lack, primarily a lack of inclusivity and in decision making. And he's right there. It's primarily white males in most fish and wildlife rod and gun clubs. And I actually, you look around, you know, they're older white males. You know, I, I worry about the future. Until backcountry hunters and anglers came along. They're full of men and women and they're young and they're meeting in group ups. They're they're very vital, very engaged, right? But prior to that, boy, the hunting community was maturing pretty rapidly, right? And the and the meetings are pretty small. So Mark's challenge, and we've um debated, you know, had fun um discussing that how do we as hunters share decision making at the table, the commissions? With people that with just women, much low, much less um, another gender, much less another race, or someone who doesn't believe in hunting. How do we share that decision making power? So his whole theme in that book is well, he's got the biology in there. He's top notch scientist, but he likes to poke and make you think that there isn't much inclusivity in 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 managing uh, big game, not just lions. So that that from that's just my opinion, but that that's why. I enjoyed it because it does make you think, you know, it's okay. like, okay, you know. Yeah. Sometimes those hard books are the yep. the ones which make you think. I I felt like it was the political slant was so strongly uh, opposing mine that it was at yep. times, you know, it, it, it's difficult to interact yeah, Mark's, with information. Mark's a hunter and, you know, and, and he's a dad and, and uh, he's a friend of mine and, but he's also very good at, 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 you know, thought-provoking discussions and challenging the status quo, which frankly, as hunters and as carnivore hunters, you know, we're going to need that, right? To to stay relevant and and maintain that privilege into the future. How are we, and that's a, and, and that's I've always struggled with that too. As hunters, how do we become more inclusive? And at not necessarily hunting, but at the decision-making table of who gets to take what? And that's the Fish and Wildlife Commission's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't have an answer. That, yeah, that's for young folks like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's hard. Uh, so there's a sort of I felt like one of the fundamental dynamics of your book was this relationship between being an outsider and being a local in places. Yeah. Whether it was when you first moved to Montana and you're getting in bar fights, or when you go down to Patagonia and you're talking with this Leoneros and they're like these hard, leathery uh, Patagonian lion hunters who live to stack up lion heads. Uh, it, and, and partially this relates to what we we're just talking about with Mark Elbrook, you know, how do we involve now there's many stakeholders, uh, you know, uh, outside of, outside of the 
area that these things are taking place. For instance, you know, Portland decides what Oregon does to some extent. And how do we balance that conversation between the locals who say, you out there don't understand what's going on in here? I think rightfully so. The The closer you are to a place, the better you understand it to some extent. But also the fact that we live in a democracy where every, you know, everyone in Oregon has a vote, you know? And that, you know, yet that's a good point. So Mark talks about local collaboratives. He uses an example of one chapter of a, of a lion working group in Missoula. I was actually set in on those as well. Um, and I think if we broaden, if, if we make the tent a little bit larger and invite some of the Portland, Seattle values in, in a locally led collaborative group. And that's what I do now with the land trust. There's lots of locally led groups that ranchers lead with land trusts on land conservation and issues, right? I think the group carries a lot of power back to a, a capital in, in in LA, a capital in, in Oregon, a capital in Washington, because you had a bigger tent. You had some values on there that are similar to what's in the urban areas, but the group came to you know, give and take and, and came with a recommendation, it's going to carry. And I think that'll save hunting in some instances, but it's very difficult to invite people that don't agree with you or that aren't like you into a decision-making, a power-sharing environment, right? And But we have to do that. And it has to happen, particularly with carnivore, bear and lion hunting and wolf yeah. Well, wolves are different. Wolves are off the charts. Boy, people's brains turn off when it comes to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's why my hair's gray. You know, yeah. it was blonde yeah. before wolves took off. <laughs> so we need to figure out a way to get a, a, a more diverse group uh, and to make hunting type recommendations. And then it'll it'll mitigate some of the anti uh, hunting values in in the in the capitals where the decisions are made because they know. Uh, that you'll have champions that aren't necessarily hunters in that group that brings those recommendations forward. And that'll carry weight the same way Hellman carried weight, you know, and from a rural and local perspective, you know, in Montana in a more rural state. Yeah. It, it seems, uh, it seems to be about reaching out and, and I like bringing more people into the tent. Uh, there, the animal rights groups, we call them animal rights groups. I don't know what to call them. The side, yeah, which yeah. essentially yeah. wants no hunting. You know, not just predator hunting. I, I think the end goal, I, there really is a sort of extreme perspective on, on both sides. But on that side is, you know, to the point that meat should not be allowed. And, you know, we're a long ways from that and it's not going to happen. But now, some of that's nonsensical. I mean, I grew up in, far, I was born in farm country of Iowa. You know, humans eat, they, they need food, right? And not everyone's right. going to be a vegetarian. We're going to eat meat. But and, I think uh, behind these big animal rights organizations, it's it, it's not, those are not crazy ideas there. Although the public will is not there. The fear of the hunting community is that, okay, well, we bring more people into the tent. We start you know, changing things to make it more acceptable for mm-hmm. Portland. And there's this fear of death by a thousand cuts, a slippery slope to, you know, first it will be trapping, then, it, and, and to some extent it is happening, right? It might be yeah. happening oh, yeah. regardless of what we do, but uh, there's a fear that any concession will be, you know, is the beginning of the end. And how do yeah. we navigate that? I, I agree, but that's that's kind of a dangerous position to take because like in California, you already lost it. In in Oregon and Washington, you've lost half of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's really that, that, there's really no risk. There's only gains that could happen maybe to get a little bit of that back, right? And on a trial uh, basis. Um, I hear you. It's, I think for deer and elk hunting, 
you know, this this movement toward farm to table and chemical f- free meats is the best thing. You know, all these kids, men and women and people from big cities all want to kill a deer now and take adult hunter ed. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, like, you know, when as hunters, when we often our hands are the only thing that touches that deer elk from the time it dies to the time it's processed in the field to the time it's cut up to the time you bear it carried out to the time you wrap it label it and stick it in the freezer all the way until you serve it to friends and family only your fingers have touched that animal compared to you know industrial cattle and other meats that have hormones and chemicals or whatever you know uh and, and so there's a real demand a real desire to connect to nature that way for younger uh younger demographics to get their own food and i think that's that that is incredibly powerful to keep hunting as a legal management tool Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. What what do you think about the Patagonia approach to conservation? You talked about this in your mm-hmm. book. Yeah, so you know it, it's a totally different um, environment down there. You know, it, you don't really have public lands per se. You have park or private. You have large ranches that were owned um, by European um, you know conglomerates ownerships. And in the case of the Tompkins parks, a lot of those were mining conglomerates that. Doug and Chris Tompkins over time purchased either ranches, assemblages of ranches, or these big properties that are owned by European or or non uh, Chilean or non Argentina landowners, and it was very controversial, right? You know, is he creating a uh, an American state in Patagonia? Is he trying to hoard water? You know, oh, you got accused of everything, um, and then in the end. You know, he he passed. He died in a kayaking accident down there on a lake like Flathead Lake, real dangerous lake. Um, in the end, both Argentina and Chile made him an honorary citizen. It's just a <laughs> shame he couldn't see that. Chris did. Um, they gave the parks all back. They spent all that time, their entire personal fortunes, all their energy, blood, sweat, and tears, hired local staffs in Argentina and Chile, created a trust to carry it, and gave every property back to the country. And that's important because in Chile and Argentina, you don't have the public lands like you do here, the in-between Forest Service, BLM, state lands. All you have is a park or a ranch. And most of the ranches are outfitted European hunters, American hunters that come down, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's not the tradition of firearm ownership like we have and a lot of the, the, the rights that we enjoy in this country. So those parks down there, are going to be incredible people are going to get local argentine families local chilean families they're going to get married near them in the communities near the communities are going to prosper with with amenities you know for visitors they're breathtaking parks they're striking it's like the united states rocky mountains on steroids and even more remote and what they've done in my mind is is as significant as any of the major land conservation movements here in the united states Mm -hmm. and they did it with their own money and yeah, Patagonia, the clothing company, Yvonne and Melinda Chenard. There are, there's a group of them that all work together. So, and those parks, those pieces of land have gone back to the Argentinian and Chilean governments now. All of them. Yep. Wow. Okay. Gave it away. Uh, the uh, I my the sort of idealistic part of me is scared of that because what I love so much about the public land system here is that it's democratic and like we all have an equal stake in it. I'm I'm reluctant to rely upon billionaires to you know conserve for us because i think it's a fundamentally undemocratic idea but pragmatically it's achieved something which is great and it's it's done a very good thing how very controversial right <laughs> yeah we've we've got sort of similar things going on here with things like well the wilkes brothers are on one side of the equation warren buffett's somewhere in the middle where he 
continually promises to give his money away, but for now he'll do the best with it. And something like the Nature Conservancy or the American Prairie Reserve is on the other. And it seems like a uh, a difficult spectrum to navigate. How how do we move on that? Yeah, I think, you know, we don't have a choice. Um, and so that's my new career since I retired from Fish Alive and Parks. I work for the Heart of the Rockies Initiative. Mm-hmm. We have 27 land trust members in from Jackson Hole to Sun Valley, north to Banff, right? And mm-hmm. in Golden, BC. Land trusts are the unsung heroes in conservation. They are doing land conservation, keeping working families on the land, uh, ranches, which means fish and wildlife remain, um, with willing property owners. Those ranchers are exercising their property right to do a conservation easement. Um, And sometimes there's a tax benefit. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's finances, a benefit. Sometimes there's not. They're doing it for the right reason. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the model. The pace of conservation to protect those open lands needs to really increase. And it's not climate change. It's humans. Uh, Since the pandemic, the Rockies have experienced um, three different migrations. COVID refugees fled the big cities and wanted to to come where people live laterally in the landscape versus vertically. Um, The the climate migrants, when California, Oregon and Washington caught on fire, you know, a lot of people with the wealth that could came to the Rockies. And then um, when the riots started, you know, in Portland and Seattle and everywhere throughout the country, you had a lot of people that had the, the, the wherewithal to pack up and move to come where they felt safer. So those three in migrations in in the prime wildlife habitats of the northern and central Rockies are very significant. The pressure to subdivide has never been greater. So I think as hunters, we need to support all, getting back to your question, all vehicles of keeping open space, whether there's access or not, you can always negotiate access down the road, whether it's a Wilkes Brothers or whether it's American Prairie Reserve. On really? Of, whether it's the Wilkes Brothers? If they put a conservation easement on a property, support them, I'd say. You can negotiate the access down the road because you might hunt a bull elk that was raised on their property that moved off on public land where you can't hunt, right? right? Versus if they subdivided them and sold them to the highest bidder, then then we're all going to lose. But that the key is if they put a conservation easement, right? Or as long as they keep it undeveloped. And that's a tough thing. That's a trust thing. That's what you're getting at. And I, I agree, man. I'm nervous too. But open lands, keeping those working families on the land is critical to fish and wildlife in the West. And that's why I'm excited to work with these land trusts to give everything I have left, you know, energy-wise in my career, mm-hmm. you know, to helping them work with these private property owners to keep open space for fish and wildlife. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, I get that. It's, the, you know, there's a slight discomfort where there's a question of like different cultural values and oh well then it's good that the nature conservative is open but they're fine with fishing and maybe duck hunting but you can't use the dog but down the road we might get there that's what you can't do is close the door because at the residential uh the put the footprint of a residential subdivision is permanent the the, the no access signs are not those those can be opened up, but it's going to take work, but they can be opened up. And, and I, I would, I, I'm not willing to give those up yet. Okay.